Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Have you ever tried a kind bar? You may have seen them in your local grocery store, coffee shop, or gym. I keep a box of them in my pantry. They make delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients you can recognize and pronounce. And if you're ready to try some tasty and healthy snacks, I have got a special deal for you. You can try 10 Kind Bars for free. That is free. Free as in zero money. All you have to do is pay for shipping. When you order the sample box, you'll also get to try Kind's Snack Club, where you receive monthly snacks at a discount and get members-only bonuses. You shouldn't have to choose between your health and taste when it comes to snacking. That's why both award-winning chefs and nutritionists love and recommend Kind Bars. I actually kind of live on Kind Bars because I'm one of those people that forgets to eat if I get engrossed in something. So I have to have a kind of a pile of uh, things that I can eat without, you know, having to do too much to get it going because I'm always afraid I'm going to get out of my magical groove. So I just keep, like I said, I keep a sort of a stash of, of uh, Kind Bars in my pantry. I like them especially because they have stuff that's not especially sweet. There's a jalapeno flavored one and a Korean spicy one. They also have your more traditional kind of granola stuff like dark chocolate nuts and sea salt, um, almonds and spice, uh, that kind of thing. They're all delicious. And again, you can get a box for free if you go to kindsnacks.com slash friends. That's kindsnacks.com dot com slash friends. And I want to thank Kind for supporting this podcast. And remember, when you support my sponsors, you support the podcast. So go get some free Kind bars, kindsnacks.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about uncomfortable conversations and messy coalitions. Today's show is uh, particularly messy and pretty uncomfortable. We're going to talk about the massacre in Las Vegas, and we're going to talk a little bit about suicide. So if those topics are not things that you want to hear about right now, I encourage you to turn off the pod and go take care of yourself in whatever way you need to. Hopefully come back if you can, because I do think they're really good discussions. The two guests this week are Sam Singyawe, who is the co-founder of the Zero Campaign, and we're going to talk to him about the institutional racism that shows up in stuff like the Las Vegas massacre in ways that you may not see at first. And in the second segment, I'm going to talk to Rick Wilson, a friend of the show and a term I managed to invent, talking to him, ally of the show, comrade of the show. Uh, Again, they're both conversations about uh, gun violence and gun suicide. So do whatever you need to do to get ready for that. And I will remind you that if conversations about suicide or violence 
are bringing things up for you right now. I want to encourage you, as always, to take advantage of the resources that are out there. For almost any mental health or emotional issue, you can use the crisis text line, which is 741-741. Text them anything and they can get you through the moment that you're having right now and hook you up with resources for further care. And if you are experiencing suicidal ideations, please, please, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is 800-273-8255. I also want to remind people that gun violence is a fact of everyday life. Uh, Mass shootings are not the primary method of gun deaths in America. They're actually usually accidents and suicides. So... If you or someone you know has a gun in the house, please check and make sure that it's stored safely. And please make sure that children and people that might hurt themselves do not have access to it. Those are the steps you can take today to help us address this national and ongoing problem. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, A lot of show to go. Coming up, Samson Yangwei. Welcome to the show, Samson Yangwei. It's great to be here. You're the co-founder of Campaign Zero, a national platform to end police violence in the U.S. As I was just observing before we actually started recording, at least you have, you know, a modest attainable goal there. So you aim high. That's good. (laughs) So Campaign Zero is about tackling institutional racism. And that seems like something that's in the news a lot lately just as itself, right? Like we see a lot of people talk about institutional racism. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is... The news that we don't think of as being necessarily tied up with institutional racism often has that aspect to it, right? I mean, that's what institutionalism is. And in fact, this shooting in Las Vegas combines a lot of different tropes that reflect some you know, narratives of white supremacy. Now, one of them is the fact that when it is called the worst shooting in American history, that doesn't take into account these numerous other examples of mass shootings of slaughter of people of color, right? They're defining mass shooting in this very specific way that erases that history. Right. Uh, And it is interesting how they, um, you know, one of the things that is, I think, fascinating is putting this uh, in its lightest possible form, but the way that the definitions and the ways that that these things are interpreted and uh, measured and defined uh, are often done in ways that erase that history of institutional racism and racialized violence. So, you know, when you talk about mass shooting, you know, and I cited all of these examples of essentially mobs of white men. Sometimes it was the Klan. Sometimes it was, you know, folks who are just, you know, regular folks who came out into the street and decided to, to shoot people. Um, you know, those were mass shootings. They were mm-hmm. hundreds of people shot and killed in those incidents. Um, but, you know, when I mentioned those, some people would push back and be like, well, that's not a, a mass shooting. A mass shooting has a single shooter. And then I was like, well, I mean, they didn't say that about San Bernardino where there were two shooters. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know why suddenly we're moving the goalpost um, in order to erase uh, a, a, a shockingly um, violent history in this country. Right. I mean, I think that the way we could define it that would not erase that history would be Pretty much exactly what it says, right? Mass shooting when lots of people are shot. Exactly. um, By what might be a smaller group of people, but might not. Um, It just depends on how you define it. And you've also pointed to another place where institutionalized racism exists that that seems invisible. And again, that's what 
institutional racism does, right? It's, it makes itself invisible. So we have to call it forward. And that's this jump to calling the killer in Las Vegas a lone wolf. Exactly. You know, there was what we found in, you know, when we look, you know, my work focuses predominantly on uh, police shootings and, you know, people being killed by police um, who are disproportionately black. And, you know, when a, an unarmed black person is killed by police, what we've seen again and again and again is this effort to criminalize that that victim and sort of make it look like they deserved to die. So we saw this, um, in many cases, you would see a mugshot would be the first thing that they would, the first image they would share of the person. So making them look like a criminal, you would see uh, them trying to pull up that person's criminal history if they had anything, you know, maybe this person got stopped by, you know, traffic stops. He had a bunch of outstanding, you know, uh, traffic ticket payments to make. Um, I remember with Walter Scott, it was, you know, he owed a lot of child support. Um, and so they Trayvon really pay- Martin just looked really scary. Right, right. That he That's looked the- like an adult, even though he was 12, right? That was right. what they were saying. And they're really trying to paint that person in as negative a light as possible. And then when we see the reverse happen, when uh, a white person is the killer, right? Um, as we saw in Las Vegas, there was this immediate attempt to sort of paint them as a lone wolf, as not emblematic of a broader criminal criminal uh, tendency or violent tendency of white people in general, as they do with this sort of black on black crime trope, trope to us. Um, and they there were a couple articles that came out. One was calling him a lone shooter. There was another article that uh, maybe he was on the wrong medications. Um, you know, all, there was another one that was Poor saying guy, how much right? he loved country music and how he was just in general a nice guy and they didn't know what happened to him. So, you know, at some point we have to call that out, call out the way that the media is framing these issues because that factors into the way that the public interprets them and the need to take on broader solutions. And if we think about this as a problem of lone wolves, then we're not thinking about policy and systems. We're not thinking about uh, an environment that allows people to get access to, um, you know, assault weapons and, you know, bump stocks that can turn those weapons into automatic weapons. Um, you know, there are policies and systems in play. We're not thinking about the, the violence in um, how gun violence is being portrayed in the media and on, in movies, how, you know, it's very hard to even find a movie where somebody's not getting shot and killed and where that's not glorified. Mm-hmm. Um And so, you know, there's a broader societal issue that needs to be identified and addressed in order to stop gun violence. And that can't happen if we just try to isolate the people who are responsible for the most heinous acts as somehow being disconnected from those systems in play. And I think there's another way that that lone wolf uh, theory, that when it jumps to the front to explain uh, white violence, what that does is create a narrative where white people are the anguished individuals who take um, an inexplicable action of some kind that, oh, that's just, it's a tragedy. It's terrible. I guess he must have been crazy. Who could have predicted it? Da, 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 da. But black and brown people, no, they were puppets of ISIS. No, they are part of a community that's sick. They're the, the you know, part of a, some bad subculture. They aren't even distinguished as like necessarily having their own history, their own individual path that led them to some piece of violence. Right, exactly. Um, you know, if this was, if the shooter was black at a rap concert, uh, all we would be hearing right now in the media was uh, about violent tendencies, 
of black culture and black music and black communities and black on black crime. And it would be depicted as this huge uh, symptom of the pathology of black people writ large of every black person in this country. And we simply just are not even having that conversation about uh, white people in the aftermath of, of this Las Vegas shooting. And I say this as a country music fan, but there's a lot of guns in country music. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, There's you could make that argument if you really wanted to, although that's not the point. Right. 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 I mean, the point is that they are applying a different standard um, based on race. You know, when these things happen, you could say the same thing if the shooter was Muslim. Um, You know, they're definitely they would have called it terrorism immediately. They would have um, talked about, you know, a ban or a crackdown on Muslim communities. And, you know, we're just not seeing that type of response uh, in this case. Um, for that reason that that this, the shooter was white. And I want to move on to something else that I uh, noticed you making an argument about on Twitter where I, I, I don't think enough liberals and progressives are hearing this side of, of the gun control debate, which is at the same time that we, you know, need to sort of treat all of these crimes in the, in the same way, right? Need to ex- examine each situation individually. There is a danger when we start making this, making our gun control arguments about keeping certain specific kinds of people away from guns. Right. Um, So I think the big picture is thinking about institutionalized racism. Uh, What that means in the context of gun control is that any type of policy that criminalizes particular types of guns Uh, criminalize particular types of people in possession of guns um, will be disproportionately and unfairly applied to black and brown communities in terms of its enforcement. And that's because that's where police are. That's because we know that uh, black people are more likely to be uh, arrested, charged, convicted, sentenced uh, for doing the same thing as a white person in the same situation. Um, And so, you know, if we talk about you know, increasing penalties on people caught in possession of illegal firearms, which is, you know, one put, one proposal that has, you know, floated around, you know, reality is that's going to result in more incarceration and it's going to result particularly in incarceration of black folks. If we're talking about policies that, for example, you know, we have to think about stop and frisk even, you know, that was proposed as a gun control measure that mm-hmm. we needed to get the guns off the streets. And so police should be, you know, finding people they deem suspicious who could potentially have a firearm and pat them down and stop and frisk them. And what we know to be true is that that was applied almost exclusively to black and brown young people. uh, And it didn't actually have any noticeable impact on the rates of shootings in the city of New York. And so, you know, when we think about this, that's not to say that there doesn't need to be gun control. I mean, it's pretty obvious that the United States has a huge gun violence issue, that there are way too many guns in general, that people shouldn't have access to, you know, especially assault weapons and, you know, things like that. Um, But, the, the particular policies we choose to deal with it matter. And so what, what I was pushing for is that we need to actually have policies that focus on gun sellers and gun manufacturers, not necessarily the individuals who end up in possession of guns. Um, and that's where you really flip it to really focus on what's the source of the problem because the guns aren't being manufactured you know, in black neighborhoods. Um, right. So we need to really look at the source, the root of the problem uh, and, and start there. And then ask some questions about the market that that is being created by the manufacturers too, you know, and their profits that you know create the momentum for indi- you know individuals to own twenty or thirty guns. 
Like that's the world that they want. Um, I read somewhere that the market for firearms is a lot like the market for alcohol, which is that most of the consumption is by a small group of people, right? I think it's 3% of the population owns the majority of guns. Right. Like it's the, basically it's the alcoholics that support the alcohol industry (laughs) and it's the gun addicts that support the gun industry. Um, But, and we should be looking at that system um, where, you know, people are rewarded for creating this entire market. And I wanted to point out too, because you didn't mention it, that um, another place where I think some liberals and progressives may not realize what kinds of policies they're advocating is when they say people on the terror watch list should should be specially penalized when it comes to access to weapons. Right. Yeah. I, I, I feel, mean, you know, the question is, who's on the terror <laughs> who watch do you list? Think, yeah. Who right? do you think is on that watch list? Because they haven't really, support, uh, I mean, at minimum, they could report the demographics of that list. They don't even do that because the reality is, you know, I don't think this is a stretch to assume, but I'm assuming that almost everybody on that watch list is uh, black or brown and the majority probably being Muslim. And that is actually very different than the actual population of terrorists in this country. Um, because as we've seen, you know, the majority of terrorist attacks are actually um, committed by white males and particularly far right groups, white supremacist groups. And that has been true since the beginning of this country. And so, you know, if there's going to be some sort of effort to, you know, address people on the terror watch list getting guns, which, you know, obviously um, is something that should be considered, we should at first figure out who's on that watch list and whether that list actually reflects the population of terrorists before we then essentially further criminalize the people on the list. Right. Like if you look at the demographics of who's done mass shootings in the U.S., the kinds of people that should pop up on your profile if you're the gun, you know, you're the gun shop owner would not necessarily be Muslims. Right. You know, right. like this person fits the profile. I better be concerned. And then I, I, I haven't actually talked to you about this before, so I'd be curious whether or not this fits in with the kind of framework we're talking about. But you know, I've talked a lot about on this show and I'm very open about the fact that I'm bipolar. I've had a suicide attempt in my life. I'm guaranteed A1 mental defective. I've, it's on my record. There are people that would say that means I shouldn't be able to have access to a weapon. I take that kind of personally. Um, there is something kind of wrong about using mental health as a guide too, because the mental, mentally ill people actually aren't necessarily any more violent than the rest of the world. In fact, some, according to some statistics, they're less violent. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I just think it further stigmatizes people with mental illness. It keeps people from necessarily reporting mental illness, you know, Uh, and also it ignores actually what is a real issue, which is gun suicides are actually the biggest cause of gun death in the U.S. by like, I think it's two thirds. So we should be talking about who has access to guns and suicide at the same time. But something that I've discovered in my research is actually that most of the people that commit suicide by gun when researchers go back and look at their history, they don't necessarily show signs of suicidal ideation or mental illness. What's the tragedy in a lot of those situations? Is there people that are undergoing like a particular kind of crisis? Exactly. And they have access to a gun. Exactly. You know? And so hopefully we can continually collect and use data to better identify, you know, when people are having these moments of crisis so that there can be some sort of intervention that happens that prevents them from, you know, using a gun at that point, uh, whether it's to commit suicide or, or otherwise, uh, instead of trying to label, you know, large groups of people based on, you know, stereotypical assumptions um, that are not supported by the facts. Yeah. And I think also it's it's worth pointing out that even I, I personally, I'm 
for a liberal, fairly pro-gun. I'm pro-gun control as well. But I have no problem with like waiting periods, which have been shown statistically to be the best prevention against gun suicides. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Because if you have to wait three days, you might think about it a little bit more. It's just Um, common sense. You know, like every country in the world has done a better job than us at this. And so, you know, this is not a stretch to say that we can actually address this issue. It just requires courage, particularly among political leadership, uh, to reject the NRA, to actually use data instead of assumption to guide, you know, what the best practice should be, and then to implement that agenda. Before we get done on this topic, I have to ask you about something that um, I know pollutes everyone's uh, debate about this once they engage with any audience beyond, let's say, like liberal blogosphere or whatever, which is what about Chicago? Right. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's like a it's a button they hit at the Fox News you know, headquarters. They have like a series of buttons, you know, they have like the emails <laughs> button, they have like the Benghazi button, they have the what about Chicago button. So, you know, it's, it's, so you have an answer to it, created. I presume since it's, since it's a familiar <laughs> refrain and for people that don't know what we're talking about, the off chance, well, bless you. Number one, if you don't know what we're talking about, but this is the refrain that comes from the right. Whenever we talk about gun violence and gun control, they say, look at the horrible, you know, situation in Chicago with how many gun deaths are happening there which is, of course, a terrible situation. But do you want to talk about why that's not the, the rebuttal that they think it is? Right. Um, so, yeah, so they're proposing essentially that because Chicago has relatively strict gun control laws and still has uh, a high rate of homicides, although by no means the highest rate of any city, um, that that somehow invalidates the effectiveness of gun control. And there was a study that was actually done on this I believe it was in the New York Times, that traced the guns that were used to commit those homicides in Chicago. And what they found was that the majority of those guns came from out of state. And the largest state responsible was Indiana, which is Mike Pence's home state. Mm -hmm. So essentially the guns are coming from places that have loose laws that allow people to get access to all kinds of guns whenever they want them, however many they want, and then bring them into Chicago to commit those homicides. So if you wanted to actually address the violence in Chicago, one of the things you'd have to do is actually ensure that there were stricter gun control laws in those Republican controlled states as well. Yeah. Well, basically, we need to look at federalizing our gun laws, which I know a lot of libertarians and if there's any conservatives out there listening will immediately start cringing. But that's how we treat, you know, a lot of other laws that we recognize as problems being across state lines. So maybe this is something that we need to create incentives for or these Republican states to keep their laws in a, in a way that it doesn't just, you know, invalidate them when you walk across a state line and validate the work of a different state just by having someone walk across a state line. So I want to talk to you about some other stuff. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. So I, as I mentioned before, like I can get so lost in doing things that I forget to eat. You can imagine what kind of effect that has on my, uh, memory just in general. I am one of the people that uh, I will leave the house multiple times having forgotten multiple things. Thank God I'm married to someone that is more uh, clear-headed about that stuff than I am. But when he's not around, I have to use something like the tracker device, which I have on my key ring. Uh, I have tucked into my wallet and I have um, actually in my computer case as well. Uh, Don't tend to 
forget that stuff so much as, you know, like even I forget where I put my computer in the apartment. I'm just not thinking about that stuff because we have so much to think about these days, right? Um, And I also often listen to podcasts while I'm puttering around the house and that can kind of get in the way of remembering exactly where I put everything. So you, like me, should have a tracker device. They have a new tracker device that's called the Tracker Pixel that is incredibly tiny. It is the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You can put it on whatever it is you tend to lose, your keys, your wallet, even your cat, although our cats are indoor cats. They are sometimes hard to find. I will admit that, but I have yet to put a tracker device on them. It is small enough, however, to fit anywhere. When you misplace an item that has a tracker pixel attached, you can use your smartphone and a 90 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. It even has a powerful LED light so you can find it flashing in the dark. And if you lose your phone but have a tracker, you can press a button on your tracker pixel and the phone rings even if it's on silent. I lose my phone almost as often as I lose my keys. Again, I can actually just misplace it in the house. You can even locate your item if it's miles away because tracker users are part of the largest crowd location network in the world. It's like Waze or one of those other crowdsourcing devices, but for things. And Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee means you truly have nothing to lose. So go to the Tracker, which is T-H-E-T-R-A-C-K-R, dot com slash friends and get 20% off any order. That's thetracker.com slash friends for 20% off your order. Thetracker.com slash friends. So you work with Campaign Zero, your co-founder of Campaign Zero, national platform to end police violence. We should talk about that specifically. And also I want to know what you think of what's going on in the sports world. Um, right now, where they have taken up this cause. I'll ask first. I was at the Sparks Lynx game last night, which was fantastic, by the way. Uh, go Lynx. Um, and the Sparks and the Lynx have both been very outspoken on police violence issue, which you probably know. The WNBA has actually been a real leader on uh, these issues in letting the players talk about them. There wasn't a protest during the anthem. Do you think that we're going to see a lessening of these protests, maybe in part as a response to some kind of sense that we shouldn't do this after Las Vegas? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I I really hope not because they have nothing to do with what happened in Las Vegas. Um, The protests have been focused on, you know, from the start, from, you know, Colin Kaepernick and then emanating outwards into uh, impacting so many uh, other players in the NFL and NBA and, and other leagues as well. The protests have been about uh, police violence, ending police violence, bringing attention to what's happening, uh, as well as broader issues of racism and racialized oppression. Uh, and that continues today to the same extent that it happened then. Um, but what we've seen is how powerful, you know, that simple act of kneeling um, in before the game has been in terms of creating a national conversation um, around this issue, really amplifying the conversation that that had been started through the original protests uh, in Ferguson and, and other places, uh, but but really revitalizing that conversation, um, redirecting national attention back to uh, the issues that are at heart. Um, and what's been sad about it is the ways in which uh, folks who don't like that 
don't like what they're doing are trying to distract from it and make it about everything but the issues at heart. Yeah, there's this, um, I mean, I think whitewashing would be probably a good term to use in making it about, quote unquote, unity. Right, right. And, you know, it's a unity that is predicated on the continued existence of oppression and inability to even bring it up is not really any sort of unity that I value, right? Like what's the point of unity if you're not even going to address the underlying fundamental issues that are uh, still killing us to this day? And just to give you a sense, you know, we built the most comprehensive database of people killed by police in the United States. And what we found was that there are 1,200 people killed by police every single year in this country, three to four people a day. Um, And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's 55,000 people injured by police every year. Um, So it's about 180 people a day, Um, people with friends and family, uh, something like uh, 54% of black youth have personally experienced or know somebody personally who's experienced police violence. So this is an issue that that touches so many people and something that deserves national attention uh, and a national solution. And yet we're not seeing um, a real urgency, particularly from this administration, to do anything about no. it except exacerbate it, to cut back on programs uh, like the collaborative reform initiative at the DOJ that are, were meant to address this issue. I hope that we continue to see NFL protests and other sports world protests, because I do think that this is, they've managed to, you know, athletes have managed to bring this into public consciousness and public debate in a way that the actual events themselves somehow didn't, you know, like we didn't keep talking about police violence um, after the morning of these deaths. We sort of, we, and I actually should say, I guess we white people, we in the media, we in the mostly white media. Um, But athletes have forced us to talk about it. And I do worry that it's been, that the issue has been, you know, subsumed by this almost literal kumbaya of linking arms, um, you know, players linking arms. And that's the unity, quote unquote, unity that I I was referring to. Because some of them have actually, including white players, have actually been incredibly articulate and passionate about what they've learned from each other. You know, like I feel like some of the best statements that have come from athletes have been, like you said, so 54% of black youth have had uh, been had their lives touched by police violence. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Is it is it death or just some kind of violence? Uh, violence period? in general. Violence in general. So that means that, you know, probably something like half of the players, you know, black players have experienced that. Right. Right. Um, And what you hear when white athletes talk about it, they talk about what they're learning in the locker room from the experience of their friends. And I feel like that's code for, wow, you know, I didn't know. Because, I mean, a lot of us, you know, white people don't. We don't ask the question, and so we don't hear about it. Absolutely. Um, And I should say, you know, it's oftentimes depicted as an issue that um, is sort of like a black issue only. And it's definitely not. So, you know, when you look at the, the data, what's clear is that white people in this country are being killed by police at rates far above white people in every other developed country in the world. And so, you know, this is an issue that, you know, white communities uh, beyond sort of the issue of how do we actually uh, stop violence that in many ways we're enabling by continuing to keep these institutions in power, uh, refuse to hold them accountable. But a broader issue about like, how do we even keep our own community safe 
uh, from what what amounts to the the most severe form of government intervention in anyone's life, um, which yeah. is the state, you know, taking your life away, taking your your freedom away, uh, incarcerating you. Um, they can also take your property away through civil asset forfeiture. I mean, it's really severe, and, and hopefully, like even conservatives, this is something they always talk about as government tyranny, but they have not uh, applied that standard to this issue for some reason. Some of them have, and there's, you know, they're, you know, it, you probably also saw this. I feel like last year, um, you started to see a kind of libertarian, progressive, uh, the beginnings of an alliance about some of this stuff. You know, especially like the militarization of police. Rand Paul has been very strong on that issue. Uh, the civil asset forfeiture rules. Uh, you've also seen libertarians take that up. Uh, drug reform, uh, drug law reform. You've seen obviously that's been a civil libertarian issue for a long time. And I really felt the past couple of years like, oh, we're maybe in a moment that this is going to change. And then Trump got elected. <laughs> right, right. Essentially reversed and, all of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, Jeff Sessions has never met a repressive law he didn't like. Right. And all of that stuff where this very fragile coalition, I think, really was emerging, is starting to get rolled back. But I... I I don't want to end our conversation without talking about something that if if not entirely optimistic is at least something actionable for people who are listening. Yes. Which so, is working on the state level, yes, right? Yes, yes. Um so you, you know the the bad news is that obviously this current administration um is antithetical to I mean pretty much everything that would help uh, address these issues. However, Criminal justice reform, uh, police reform, you know, those are issues that are, and not just those issues, I mean, you know, voting rights, reproductive rights, you know, all of those issues are primarily controlled at the state level and to some extent the local level. And so, you know, even with this administration in power, we still have uh, incredible leverage to actually impact state legislatures, uh, city councils. And so we should be using that power to actually take action, to contact your you know, city council member, to contact your state legislator and governor, uh, to show up to vote. Um, you know, especially you know, if you're in Virginia, then that means uh, this November to show up to vote and flip that state legislature blue. If you're in you know, most other states, then that means 2018. Um, and so we created ourstates.org, which is a platform where you can actually see what legislation is being considered across that range of issues. Uh, so from economic justice to reproductive rights, to policing, to uh, incarceration and and other issues, um, you can see what's happening in your state legislature, what they're considering, what they're passing, um, and then contact your representatives to demand that they take action. I'm curious, do you have numbers on what the turnout rates are in at your average kind of state or local election? Uh, well, so it really depends because, you know, what has happened is that you now have elections that are on off years. So, you know, what they could do, a great sort of voting uh, access reform would be if they put all of the major elections uh, to happen at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. But in many states, that's not the case. So, you know, when an election is during a presidential year or even during a midterm year, you tend to have relatively high turnout. But, you know, sometimes, you know, for example, in Virginia, you, you know, you're having a the whole House of Delegates there um, is having their election, I think it's November 7th uh, of this year. And so like, who knows about that, right? Like it's, it's mm -hmm. structured to allow a very small group of highly engaged uh, who tend to be older, whiter, more conservative people 
um, to have disproportionate power to actually choose who the representatives for everybody are. I guess I'm curious because I would love to hear some someone run the exact numbers of like how many people would have to turn out to flip an election, right? Yeah. Like on average. It's, it's actually really small in some places. Like yeah. that's what's incredible about it. I think uh, Charlotte, they just had a mayoral, I believe it was a mayoral primary um, in North Carolina. And it was like only a couple thousand people turned out. And because wow. the city leans so democratic, whoever wins sort of the the democratic primary essentially is a shoe in to win the the general. So right. you have only a couple thousand people in this entire city of, you know, I'm guessing around 200, 300,000 people choosing who that mayor is. And so you, you could think of a flip strategy where you literally could have, you know, one or two college campuses deciding who the mayor of the city is. Uh, but it takes organizing. It takes uh, voter education. Like people need to know the power that they have so that they, so that they can show up in those moments. Yeah. This is a random story, but um, my college, you know, the university um, student government, these are all, those are awful turnout elections too. As anyone who's ever been to a college probably can attest. Um, and I actually remember when I was in college, we got a liberal coalition together and managed to, we just turned out the humanities school and won everything. <laughs> right. So that would same kind of strategy you're talking about, right? Like if you just, fo- if you're in some district and you, and you manage to turn out some block of voters, like one neighborhood, one, you know, uh, campus, like you could probably take over the whole thing. Right. Right. And that's what we need to be really strategic about doing um, so that we can create those proof points, those models for other cities to adopt as well. Okay, Sam, I I really appreciate you coming on and chatting. Um, People should follow you on Twitter uh, where you do some great work, very data driven. uh, And your tweet thread, I guess that is what it's called now, right? I guess it's a threaded tweet, tweet thread. We know whatever the president doesn't know how to do it. Why should I know? Um, about killings that mass killings in American history that happen to involve people of color uh, is essential reading. Um, is that posted somewhere mm. or have you collected that? People should do that. Yes. You should put it up on crooked.com. That's what you should do. See, that's a good idea. That might just happen. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'll, you know, you, you get in touch with our people. You make that happen. All right. All right. Thank you so much, Sam, for talking. It's been a pleasure. So with all that discussion about how great Sam's Twitter feed is, you might be interested in following him on Twitter. Managed not to mention his exact handle. It is Sam Sway, at Sam Sway, at S-A-M-S-W-E-Y. And coming up, The Rick Wilson, which happens to be his Twitter handle, at The Rick Wilson. Coming up. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are like you're a person that believes in good government, you're a person that believes in transparency. And if you ask for transparency from your government, don't you want it from the people that make your clothes? Like you don't want your clothes to be transparent, but you want the process of buying them and manufacturing them to be. And that is one of the reasons why I love Everlane. Uh, When someone sells you a $30 shirt, you want to know if it costs even close to that to make or if it was made for $7 somewhere where the working conditions are pitiful and you don't know anything more about it besides how cheap the working conditions are. Everlane is transparent about how your clothes are manufactured so you can feel good about buying them and you will never overpay for the quality of clothes that you get. Everlane only makes premium essentials. They use the finest materials without traditional markups and they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. And they want you to know what you're paying for and why. 
It's a radical transparency about every step of the process from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. And they sell directly to you. Their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers because of that. And their clothes look better and last longer. I actually genuinely love Everlane. I was buying Everlane clothes before they became a sponsor of the show. Um, They create just wonderful basics and essentials, but they have have style to them as well. Uh, They're not just sort of off the rack. There's always a little something special about them. I really love the Everlane shoes, which are made in Italy. Uh, They have a elastic back for the ladies' shoes and that's slightly deeper toe box. Women will know what I'm talking about. Uh, It makes them a lot more comfortable. Their day shoe is amazing and they sell out of colors all the time. I was very lucky. Um, They sent me a couple to look at and they're gorgeous. Even my husband likes them and he's not really into shoes. I also have their box cut silk shirt, which I love. And again, it's an essential that's classic without really being basic. They also just started uh, manufacturing jeans and those are great too. I have the medium rise jean and the boyfriend jean. Uh, Both of them uh, fit great. I will warn you, they are very true to size. There is not a lot of flattery in their sizing. So you know, some brands will flatter you by telling you you're a two when you're really a four or whatever. Everlane is transparent in that regard as well. Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. So go to everlane.com slash friends. That's everlane.com slash friends. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, let's see, how Happy should we introduce you this time? Rick Wilson, raconteur. Defrocked priest of the Republican Party. Yes. <laughs> Washed in the blood of the Tea Party. Um, and now you are a friend and ally of the show, of the pod. Yes, I've uh, moved up to just to ally and not just friend. I feel, I feel privileged. We should actually make shirts that are ally of the pod. That would be... I like it. That would be I, sort of hilarious. <laughs> I, I like it a lot. I think it could work. I think there's a, that's my jam right there. <laughs> and then we can like have long conversations about allyship. And you'd feel like a real leftist. Like it would be sort of... Exactly. Yeah. A comrade, if you will. <laughs> I'm all for comrade shirts too. Comrade of the show. So, you know, in the spirit of our of our opening conversation here, do you want to talk about the stuff we agree on and we can like hate on Trump first and then we can get to this thing, stuff that we may not agree okay. on? We, either way, whatever, you, however you want to do it. You know, I, I go, I'm, I can work either side of it. OK, well, I actually do want to talk about I can't believe I'm, I can't believe I'm saying these words. I want to talk about Trump's tweets. Uh, sort of. Okay. Sort of. <laughs> I mean. I guess I want to talk about it a little bit just because you, as usual, in your Twitter feed, brought up something that I, it's one of those things like, why aren't people on the right more freaked out? Which is then when Trump talks about having an investigation into fake news, mm-hmm. shouldn't that trigger some alarm bells on the right? That this is this is one of the mysteries of our world right now. Yeah, and and that and that mystery is that the people on the Trump side of it they can't see a future beyond their immediate gratification. They're a lot like Trump himself, I think. They they can't imagine a scenario where a vastly expanded federal power of some kind couldn't later come back and bite them on the ass. And and that goes in a lot of different directions too. I mean, look. They used to freak out that Barack Obama wanted to expand Homeland Security because they thought it was you know, specifically meant to go after conservatives and Tea Party guys and militia guys. 
Well, now they are they love expanding the federal government. They think expanding ICE and DHS and all those other things that's good because we're going to get them Muslims and them Mexicans. You know, it's just it, they can't they can't see past the end of their nose on any of this stuff now, and it's sort of it's sort of a remarkable. Um, you know, wishful wish fulfillment on their part that everything that's happening is only going to be, you know, in the next five minutes. It's, it's the immediacy of everything. They're like, they're like teenagers. <laughs> well, there's two, two responses to that. One, as I've said before on this show, I think that the Republican Party is acting like a party that doesn't think it's going to have to win a fair election ever again. So there's that. There's that conspiracy theory yep. that I have, um, which could bring us very smoothly into talking about voting rights. but. I will also point out um, that you did not mention, which is maybe maybe this is because you're a practical conservative person and not a bleeding heart liberal like me. But there's the whole part of it where you should be against the expansion of government just because it's wrong. Right. Like well, I mean, that's, that's, wired in, that's wired into my DNA. <laughs> well, like not all I mean, like that, I would say not all expansions of government are wrong. But one of the reasons no. why I think we should have, you know, the, the conservative and the Democrat should be friends, as they say. Um, is that I do want people like yourselves who are alarmed at any expansion of government and who will raise questions about it, right? Right. And it's, it's the weird thing right now is, is it was seemingly very deeply baked into the Republican and the conservative sort of mindset for generations that the bigger the state is, the more power the state has, the worse off the conservative uh, experiment of limited government and personal responsibility, and all those things, and whether it was perfectly pursued or not, the, the 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 fundamental predicate was you don't expand the state, you don't expand the government, and now you know I, I guarantee you, if I went under a survey of Trump voters and I said uh, Donald Trump wants to add a half a million new employees to ICE or DHS to stop Mexicans and Muslims, they wouldn't blink an eye. It'd be like half a million. I thought Mr. Trump wanted a million. You know, they, they, they wouldn't blink an eye at it. Mm-hmm. And, and so, again, the, the, what's so baffling about it is the complete lack of caution about the expansion of government power, the expansion of state power, the expansion of the role of the state in our lives. It's just a, it's a, it's a truly novel and disturbing uh, place we found ourselves. And I also want to point out people don't know what we're talking about in terms of ICE. Uh, Splinter News, previously Gawker, uh, did a great um, uh, FOIA-based piece mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. looking at ICE. And it's basically, as John Cook, the editor, pointed out, like a Stasi operation, you know, people informing on people. Um, and it's yeah, the family snitching on each other. Yeah, it, it's it's truly terrifying. Um, and they also, I think, managed to post like the names and addresses of people like on their public website somehow. Mm -hmm. It's it's mm -hmm. really frightening. It should alarm anyone, not just it should. You would think it would especially alarm conservatives. But you're right. I mean, they're just like, yep, sure. Expansion of, of you know, expansion of the state. I will point out, as I often do, Trump is. A nationalist and a socialist. <laughs> and a statist, and yes, and, and basically a socialist in a lot of ways. Yeah, he um, is. For white people, basically. He's like a, mm -hmm. yeah. he, he believes yeah. in, is if you're expanding the state in the service of white people, then it's probably I'm, okay. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but Donald Trump is a trailer park socialist. 
Okay. I'm gonna get in trouble for saying I, I can just, I can smell the trouble in the wind already, but fuck it, I I did it. <laughs> okay. Now, what do you mean by that? Before before we get too far away Donald into Trump the trouble, has, Donald Trump has identified a lot of people, lower income people with with terrible grievances, some of which are legitimate and real, some of which have been stoked by a uh, admittedly. Uh, super effective right-wing uh, uh, media machine that guys like me certainly were happy with when it was in service to something else. And helped build. You um, personally helped build it. Hey, I, I'm, I'm owning it. Okay, Listen, good, good, good. Good. Um, we, for our but, Truth and Reconciliation but, panel later, we'll we'll have that on record. Exactly. Um, but, but what happened is these folks with these resentments and these angers and, these, and these, this sort of seething hatred and blame and blamestorming constantly you know, they were told over and over again, your problem isn't you. It's not, it's not that you didn't, didn't get the right degree. It's not that you didn't work hard. You're, it's not that you didn't, you know, do extra Y. It's, it's, you know, the brown people caused this. The immigrants caused this. The people from Mexico or Muslims caused this. And all they've gotten in the last few years is a steady diet of that. The media makes, the media is your, your problem. All these things that are that are everything outside of personal responsibility, which call me crazy, but that used to be one of those things conservatives believed in. Um, but so they, they have this wide opportunity to blame everybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it's just, it, it, I think it's incredibly cruel. I think it's deceptive. I think it's a, a con on Trump's part. Um, but these folks at, at the lower end of the economic and educational spectrum have taken it hook, line, and sinker. They believe it all as gospel and 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 he's certainly willing to exploit that yeah and, and wh- so that socialism he's talking about it you know i'm going to tell the big companies who they can trade with i'm going to tell the steel companies where they're going to be i'm going to tell the coal companies to open up again i'm going to do all this magical economic bullshit that is completely it's a, it's a complete lie of course yeah i was going to say he's but, not actually going to do any but, of that but these people believe it because a combination they're credulous and they're desperate. Mm-hmm. Well, desperation will make people credulous. You know, desperation will. Will, will make people do almost anything. And these people are desperate. And it's tragic, of course. I mean, of course, it's tragic because they're just going to get worse off. But he's built this perfect. And he, he's I don't I'm not one of the people that believes he's done this with forethought, you know, but he's built like a perpetual cycle of this. Right. Like, because they're going to become uh-huh. worse off because his policies he's enacting are, are going to make poor people, all poor people, black, white, brown, right. whatever, worse off. And then they'll just get more resentful. So they'll be even more ready for whatever line of bullshit Correct. he has to sell next, which I don't actually, I, again, I can't believe I'm kind of coming back to a Trump tweet. But I would like to, because I haven't got a chance to comment on it. I would like to point out the insanity of him being proud of his feud with the NFL. Like, <laughs> you know, it, you know, last week it's telling the NFL owners how they're going to behave and how, what they're going to do, who they're going to hire and fire. Today, it's investigating the press, wanting to, wanting to, wanting to have Senate investigations of, of journalism. You know, this is a guy whose value set is so skewed and, and, and so wrong and, and frankly, kind of fundamentally un-American. And that, that's something that I keep coming back to over and over again. This guy is 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 like someone from Turkey, or or some sort of you know Latin American caudillo. This is not a guy who is steeped in the the the, the small d democratic traditions of our country. He doesn't understand 
the Constitution. He doesn't understand the rule of law. He doesn't understand or, or believe in the, the limits of, of, of executive power and the appropriate role of the, of the commander in chief. And so you get these things where he just thinks it's cool to do this. And that, and, and a lot of his people who support him very fervently, um, you know, no matter what they said before about any of these things, once Trump says it, they believe it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I've been tempted to go in a focus group one day and pull out Barack Obama quotes, like outrageous things. Figure like the most left-wing thing I could find Barack Obama saying, or even Bernie Sanders saying. I would, I would say, go with Bernie. President Trump said, <laughs> da, 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 da. you know, what did you think about that? And I guarantee you, these Trump people, these Trump voters would go, well, that's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. My God. Oh, no one would have said that before Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they're just disconnected from, from what they used to believe as a party. And and Trump has sort of been the the, the the poison pill on conservatism. I think he's I think he's pretty much irreparably broken it when his own budget director the other day comes out and says, oh, deficits don't matter. We're all Keynesians now, Rick. <laughs> we're all Keynesians now. We may be something beyond Keynesians at this point. Oh, and so. also we're gonna wipe out Puerto Rico's debt. I don't know if you heard, but um I, I heard about that. Seventy-two billion. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> We're actually going to be talking about Puerto Rico's debt next week with Naomi Klein and the shock doctrine. So people should tune in for that. Mm-hmm. And you will probably not agree with a single word that she and I have to say, but you might you should you should tune in. But I want to talk go back to this idea that, you know, so-called conservatives, the Trump coalition or Trump, you know, Trump base has just forsaken their suspicion of government. And talk about something that um I still am getting rage tweets uh, for, about, which is something I said on Twitter, which was that I wish that conservatives took access to the ballot box, you know, as seriously as they take access to firearms. And people thought I was saying that there's some equivalency, right? They thought mm-hmm. I was saying you should have to do the same for both, which is not what oh. I was <laughs> trying to say at all. Um, people were like, you have to show an ID to buy a gun. So yeah, you should have to show an ID to vote. What I was saying is I think something that maybe I can call you in on, maybe, 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 which is that I wish conservatives were as suspicious of any infringement on access to voting as they are about any infringement on access to owning guns. Because... That's where we get back to sort of what I when I my joke slash conspiracy theory slash real theory that Republicans are acting like a party that doesn't have to win another fair election. I, I take your point on that. And I and I do think at this point there are there's a sort of clustered problem set around voting right now. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's basically threefold. The first part of it, I think, is a problem that's going to solve itself both through court decisions and state actions on, on redistricting. <laughs> I think the redistricting problem is is I, I don't see how the court doesn't end up basically pushing down a, a more nonpartisan redistricting model in the country. First off, that 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 access to the you know to to districts that look more like the people that live in them um, is going to have a lot of, of of consequences in the country that I think are potentially really interesting because it actually will make the country a little less left and a little less right. Yeah, it should. You're going to end up with a lot more, yeah, you're going to end up with a lot more districts that look like, you know, what we all live in, which is, you know, places that I live in a neighborhood that is, you know, affluent and conservative as hell. Uh, There's a neighborhood not too far from me that is, that is much more liberal. Like it's a bunch of college professors, you know? And so 
but but we're all represented by one Republican, mm-hmm. and the overall district is very you know starkly Republican, and and so so I think what's going to happen is redistricting is going to be a problem that ends up because of the Supreme Court getting getting you know a sort of top down alteration, mm-hmm. um, and I think that starts to solve a lot of the anxiety about gerrymandering and whatnot. And, and 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 redistricting, even though it means, you know, we're going to lose some guys who are, you know, in the Louis Gohmert edge of the Republican Party, the Steve King edge of the Republican Party, and Democrats are going to lose some real fireball progressives, and they're going to lose some African-American members, yeah. probably a good number, actually. That's hey, the reality of it. So you think that the, the, the court case that's in front of the Supreme Court right now that's about Wisconsin's gerrymandering is probably going to wind yeah. up in um, some sort of recommendation for, for something that is a bipartisan issue. There are a lot of conservatives that have come out in favor of, of bipartisan commissions on sure. redistricting. Uh, Schwarzenegger is well, a mean, big name who, who, who's in favor I, of I've it. told a lot of Republicans, you know, who, who bitch and moan about California and New York, um, you know, we've, we've got to swallow a bit of a poison pill. And that means that some places, you know, become a little less Republican. But if all of a sudden you were competitive in, in, in 40% more seats, and, and these things had to be fought out a little more more realistically. You know, right now, the, the rule on both sides is largely win the primary, win the general. Yep. So because of that, you end up with these races where you, know, you get the extremes on both ends of the spectrum. And, 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 and people feel alienated from that. They don't feel like they've got a, a solid choice. Um, anyway, yeah, the hard partisans on both sides love their red seats, love their blue seats. So I think that's a, 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 big, a big picture thing. I think in terms of ballot access and, and voter ID and things like that, um, that's something that's still going to be fought over, I think, for a while yet. Um, and I think it's still, that's still got to work its way through the system a bit longer. And, and you know, we can agree to disagree that, that we function with identification in many, 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 many domains. Oh, Rick, I was so happy. I was like, we we're on that. We we're on that train of like we were, best we were friends. We were going to like well, hold hands. Let me, let me let me wrap it up. Let me okay, wrap okay, it up. okay, okay, okay. Let, let me finish here. We function with the IDs in a huge number of domains in our society, and and many many states have adopted a set of best practices to provide people of lower income with identification. For no cost or 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 absolutely de minimis cost, um, and I think there's a I think there's a happy medium between the Chris Kobach fantasy of everybody has to give a DNA sample uh, when they go in the ballot booth uh, or the voting booth, um, and the same day registration, let it all hang out, no ID, no nothing, walk in the booth and vote. You know, sort of there's 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 a way to find a, a I think a good compromise here. And I think there's a, probably a set of best practices that provide ID to everybody who wants it or asks for it or needs it. And if they don't have it, get it provided for them. I think there's a, there's a way to make that happen. It's not a particularly expensive way to, way to go. It's not a particularly onerous burden on people who, who don't have ID right now. But I, I think this is a solvable problem. And I think it's one that, that the Republicans could go a long way with. In, in terms of providing that access to ID, and 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 Democrats could go a long way with with uh, you know this issue. I get why I get why people think it's a real thing, and I've said this before. I think you and I may have talked about this. Voter suppression it does happen. Yes. Okay. And voter fraud happens on the other side. 
I'm calling it the linoleum here. Like I've done campaign, I've done campaigns in Miami. Okay, trust me on this. Voter fraud is a real. You've perpetuated voter fraud. That's what you're saying. No, no. Let me say this. I've seen it. I've seen that shit up close. I'm not saying I bought any voter fraud, but I've seen its availability. But there's none of the studies, but the studies show it's so rare. Rick, do they just let, not let, get let caught? Finish, Is that let, okay, let okay, 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 okay. Let me finish. I've made this right, point sorry. a lot. I've said this on Twitter a lot. Voter suppression and voter fraud both exist, but they don't exist at the industrial scale that would be necessary to fundamentally alter. If, if tomorrow you said to me, hey, Rick, here's 50 million bucks. Go out and build a voter suppression system. It would still be really difficult to do that. And on the on the other hand, if I said to some Democrat, "Hey, here's fifty million bucks, go out and build a voter fraud system," again, difficult to do that. And and I think there are plenty of ways that that both of those problems are solvable, and both those problems are addressable. And 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 I think at the end of the day, it's a lot harder to do voter suppression with ID, and a lot harder to do voter fraud with ID. And if voter and if ID is available inexpensively, frictionlessly, you know, and and in a way that that is that is assertively put out there you know oh oh my god you don't we, we our records show you don't have a vote, an id but you are registered to vote let us help you i think you could get there and, and eliminate a lot of these problems um that exist and look the bigger problem i have with all the voting stuff right now is is although i'm a you know a fairly bleeding edge tech guy i want pencil and paper voting records I think everybody should want that. I think people should want a physical record of the individual vote. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm scared to death right now that we're getting that, that we're getting results that have been mediated by some, you know, external power, um, and and everybody should be worried as hell about that because we've proven over and over again nothing is secure in this world. Well, we have actually like active world. measures taken by Russians to interfere yeah. in our elections electronically. So Correct. yes, that's the voter fraud we all should be concerned about. Because that's and the so way that if you were going to do it, because if you're going to give me that $50 million to do voter fraud, yeah. I wouldn't be doing it with, with fake registration. I'd be hiring hackers. But if you're, but here's the thing. If you're a little old lady, if you're a little African-American lady in Milwaukee County and you, you go out and you vote and you put your ID on the table and, and it matches up with your voter registration information and you vote and there's a record of it, pencil and paper record to match up with the digital record. That's great, but if you're a little old lady with no ID, and 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 you know Boris the Boris the Russian is hacking that system and put your vote down there, there's no paper trail, there's no verification, and it's just a, it's just a like I said, I think this is a solvable problem. There's there's actual common ground on this problem. I think both sides can come together. See, on See, I like you so really much, good. and I like common ground so much. Like I really just want to get to the place where we're agreeing on that. But you're wrong that voter fraud is, exists in any major way. Um, but I'm willing to, but I'm neither of them are, neither of them are at scale. And then also, ah, also hundreds of thousands of people like didn't vote in Wisconsin because of their voter ID law. Like, I mean, I feel like voter suppression is probably a bigger problem than I hear you admitting. Um, and also, you know, one way around all of this, like one way that I think we both might be happy and get to a common ground here is if reauthorization of the Voter Rights Act, because, you know, if these voter ID regulations and voter access regulations, whether it's same day voting or same day registration or early voting or whatever, if those had to go through courts to be shown that they are not having a racial 
uh, animus in them, then we could be that would probably work out. Right. I mean, if you were doing a voter ID law with uh, preclearance, you and it got through a preclearance examination, then sure, like that would be fine. Right. Well, and like I said, I think you could get stuff through preclearance. So we should reauthorize reauthorize the Voter Rights Act, like the entire thing. Right. I have no problem with that, actually. Yeah, I I, I don't really have an issue with that. Michael Steele actually has said that that's like what he (laughs) when he thought he was going to be advising the Trump administration on transition. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That was his big idea was that Trump should actually push through like a new Voter Rights Act. And I was like, that would you. Yeah, that would have been great. You misread your opportunity there. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I saw it, though. I, I, knew, I knew where you were at. <laughs> yeah, no, he was. I mean, it, there was kind of a moment, I guess, when we all thought that was going to, you know, that Trump might show up, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Bannon-Miller-Trump-Kobach um, axis right now, they, they much like attacking the media, um, you know, pretending that there were Five million fraudulent votes in this country is a big part of their their catechism right now. Mm-hmm. Now that's absurd, by the way. And like I said, I don't think voter fraud scales at any level close to that. But you know, it, it's always onesie twosie and local precinct kind of assholes. Not you know, not not a billion people, uh, you know, or, or a million people, you know, stealthily voting illegally for Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. It just doesn't work at that scale. The president wants to put fake news under, you know, Senate investigation. That's a bad idea, but it's not a bad idea to really think about where you're getting your news from for yourself. Uh, I try to get it from as many different sources as possible, which is why I love the Texture app. It allows me to do that without, you know, breaking my coffee table under the weight of magazines. Uh, You can read The New Yorker, Time, The Atlantic, Vanity Fair, Car and Automotive, I believe is on there, tons of design magazines, food magazines, not necessarily where you get your political coverage from, but you want a wide media diet and Texture is there for you uh, to do it. And it's a beautiful app to get those magazines through. The app is Texture. You get access to 200 plus magazines full of in-depth interviews and stories. And it's right there in your tablet or phone. And they've gone beyond just delivering the magazine itself. They've made it easy to find and enjoy the articles. And they curate the articles. They have daily recommendations, exclusive interactive features, videos, and more. It is the easiest way to feed your curiosities with top news stories and new and noteworthy sections that are updated throughout the day. Texture makes magazines easy, and there are so many great ones out there. I feel like I want to have a subscription to all of them, even though really it is usually just that one story that you know you're going to have to read. Texture allows you to do that without subscribing to every magazine under the sun. It is searchable. You can mark what you like, check out back issues. You, again, can view bonus video content. And like I said, they even curate magazines and articles for you for whatever you're up to these days. Not necessarily politics. I like texture for food magazines and design magazines, which is something I'm only occasionally going to be really interested in. I don't need a subscription to Gourmet or Bon Appetit. I can just look up barbecue recipes if I want to. It is normally $9.99 a month. And again, 200 magazines for $9.99 a month. That would be a good deal. But if you go right now to texture.com slash friends, you will get a free 14-day trial. Why subscribe to just a couple of magazines when you can have all of your favorites on the smartphone or tablet all of the time or way less? 
It was one of Apple's 2016 top iPad apps. And you can, again, start your free trial now with the Texture app. If you go to texture.com slash friends for 14 days of free access to magazines, texture.com slash friends. Hi, Anna, huge friend of the pod. It's Monday morning, October 2nd. I just woke up to hear the news about the terrorist attack in Las Vegas. So my question on the surface is pretty simple. How do I keep up the fight when all the bad shit keeps piling on? On a deeper level, though, I was looking for some advice how to speak to my conservative friends about topics like this. To me, it's clear that there will be no progressive steps taken to mitigate the loss of life due to gun violence. If there was going to be anything done, I figure it would have been put into motion after Sandy Hook. Most of my friends are conservative and think me a pinko, commie, yada, yada, yada. And they will defend their understanding of the Second Amendment until they're blue in the face. Fact is, I know that guns are not going anywhere. I want to talk to them about shootings through a mental health and access lens. Well, they take any such discussion as a violation of their constitutional rights. Anna, I think I heard on a past Rick Wilson episode, maybe, that you're a gun owner while being on my side of the aisle. So I guess the root of my question above is, how do I have a rational conversation with the Fox News crowd about something as serious as this when they are coming at the issue from what I feel to be the wrong direction? I, I believe you are speaking as a Fox News crowd interpreter here, not you yourself being yes, Fox. Yes, I am a Fox News. I am a Fox whisperer. Yes, not a Fox viewer. Right. Look, I think that I think the discussion is, and this is the, one of the most short of abortion. This is probably the most deeply divided and most fraught uh, subject in our in our politics. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the big things right off the top that that a lot of gun owners hear when it's shut up, you don't need that gun, you don't need a semi-automatic, you don't need this, you don't need that. Um, it's the presumption that it's the gun that causes the, the violence or the type of weapon that causes the violence. It, they, they hear that, okay? I'm not saying that's what people are saying. I'm saying that's what they hear. And, and, and a lot of the times, folks who, who strongly favor gun control measures, they, they, they don't signal that they understand the, 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 the wild, vast, extraordinary 99.99999% of the firearms safety and shooting culture. And, and, and that is something that will, I think, often lead the discussion right into the ditch at the very top. You know, this thought that you own an evil looking black rifle, therefore you are just like the guy who killed these kids at Sandy Hook. You own an AR-15 with a, you know, with a high-capacity magazine, a 50-round mag. Therefore, you're just like the guy in Las Vegas. They hear that a lot, and they hear a sort of accusation that, that, that because they own or use or, 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 or shoot um, you know, semi-automatic or black rifles or whatever, that, you know, they, that they're the same flavor of lunatic, etc., that's what they hear an awful lot of. So, so part of it is, is, a, is a fundamental question of, do you understand what these people, you know, where they're coming from? Are you, are you painting them too broadly right off the top? The second thing that a lot of folks who, who like firearms, like guns, I'm one of them. I, I look, I'm a competitive shooter. I'm a hunter. I, I, I own a lot of weapons and I shoot a lot of weapons. I shoot long distance. I shoot, you know, three gun stuff. I, I enjoy it. It's fun. And I'm never going to go out and have a, and, and massacre people. But one of the things that people also need to understand is that 
is that it's, a t- it's kind of a nerd sport in a weird way. There's a lot of technical nature to it and getting it wrong on what the, what the technical nature of, of, mm. of, of weapons is, is a quick way to get dismissed. And a quick way to get like, you don't get it. You don't understand it. You know, an AR-15 is not a machine gun. It's not, you know, it doesn't. I, I have 9, the perfect metaphor in, here. In a second, et cetera. I have the perfect you know metaphor. Ready? It's like mm-hmm. if you start talking about Vulcans in Star Wars. Correct. It's that is the it's level perfect. of offense that home, you people have. Home run metaphor. Right. Game over. Perfect. And I think that's yeah. something we, we, we liberal nerds can. So liberal nerds, that's your yeah. that's your marker. You, when you yeah. talk to people and with look, guns, it's like you have to you have to know the canon, as it were. Yeah, right. you do. You have to understand a little bit about what you're talking about. And you have to not, you know, you have to not exaggerate these things. You have to not. It, does, it, it doesn't help an argument when immediately it's like, well, Rick, you own several AR-15s. Therefore, they're only meant to slaughter babies. Why do you have those? You, know, you accelerate into that. You're not going to get a good discussion about gun control or about or about, you know, you're not going to hear either side of the equation at that point because the other guys were shut off. Okay. And so I have a we're going to do a little, on that. We're going to do a test case on this because sure. you you didn't know this. But the first part of the show is a discussion um, with Sam Yahweh about gun control. And he and I discussed sort of the difference between talking about the gun versus talking about the system or the people that uh, own the guns or, or sell the guns. Right. And what's interesting to me is that when you started out and saying gun owners hear, you know, gun control people talk about guns and it it raises their hackles as though the guns were the bad thing. What you then went on to talk about, to me, actually, what I think raises the hackles of gun owners, I mean, I'm making maybe a fine distinction, but I think it's a worthwhile one, is that people who advocate for gun control somehow identify the gun and the gun owner as one thing almost like yeah it's the question of agency right and so they do make this jump like no one could have a use for that kind of weapon no one could you know want to own that and not want to shoot people and and i do think that's collapsing two things that are separate which is the gun owner and the gun here's a place where we might run into trouble and you know I hate to cause trouble with you but I'm going to do it anyway <laughs> gun owner myself again just a rifle not really yep. you know uh, I'm not a, a connoisseur like yourself or my father uh, who is a big nerd by the way you, you met him yeah yes you met my, met my, nerdy, Texas, my nerdy yeah. my nerdy father um, we actually should have stopped and you guys could talk about guns but um, uh, I do think it's the gun and not the gun owner that's the problem I mean, I think that in some ways could be a liberating way to look at things. Like, I just feel like we all need to recognize it is the guns themselves that are dangerous. I'm not actually worried about gun owners. And I think like Sam and I talked in the first segment, I'm against criminalizing ownership of guns. You know, I don't want people to have a limit on how many guns they own. I don't want to have a limits on what kind of magazines people own, because I know that those kinds of laws, as Sam explained on the first segment, will be used to prosecute people of color and poor people, you know, like you criminalize possession of something and you set up mass incarceration for pe- people in marginalized communities. Right. Um, pretty much, uh, pr- pretty much every time. Yep. You know, stop and frisk laws came from people wanting to do something about guns uh, and look how they got used. So I feel yeah. like we should make a distinction between the gun and the gun owner. 
But I feel like we should recognize that guns are maybe more like something inherently dangerous, like a poison or an explosive, than they are like a hobby. Like, Here, here's the thing that uh, again, and to go back to what I think a lot of folks who are who are who are in favor of gun control miss is that there's that the safety culture with ninety nine point nine 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 percent of gun owners. Sure, 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 sure. Something you you grow up in from the very start. I mean, if I had acted like a jackass with a rifle as a child, I would have gotten my my ass beat six ways from Sunday. So, you know, you kind of grow up, and my kids learn the same way. I mean, guns are not toys. And I know they're, that, but, they're, but they're it's, that point, it's that point, it's that 0.1% though. Like we, that's why we create a lot of laws is for the 0.1% that's irresponsible. Right. But, you know, here's, here's the other we thing. We don't though. worry about people I, who are I, I, good drivers. We don't, we, we still have laws about driving, even though most people sure. are responsible drivers. And, and we have a lot of laws. We have a lot of laws on the books already about, about murder and it's the instrumentality of it is generally not the relevant question. It's the intent and the action and the agency of the person who did it. If I beat you to death with a baseball bat, you're just as dead as if I shoot you in the head. Well, this is true, except that as you perfectly know, like most gun deaths are suicides, right? Yep. Almost 60%. That's right. And so, and the reason why that's such a high number is because it's guns that are effective, right? Like people commit suicide, like I tried to with drugs, it's easy to stop them, right? It's easy to be revived. If I had access to a gun when I was at my lowest point, I would not be talking to you today. Understood. And, and, so. And this, that, yeah, but that, that also, I mean, obviously, like I said, this issue is so complex. There's so many variables in it. And, and the suicide prevention question, the mental health question is absolutely you know, a, 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 an addressable issue. Well, here's the thing, though. It's not a mental health question. It's a suicide question. Studies that have been done into gun suicides, um, which are, by the way, I think 20% of gun suicides are, are veterans, um, show that those people are not necessarily suicidal. If you look at their personal histories, like they're not necessarily mentally ill. They were at a crisis point and they had sure. access to guns. So they had a moment, you know, like, People say it about suicide a lot. It's a temporary, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. So the access yeah. point uh, here yeah. is important. It's different than murder in that way. I mean, we're not going to solve this problem talking together right no. now as much as I would like to. But right. perhaps we did just have a rational bit of discussion. I think we did. And I did, think we did. Did it not? Which is not the, not the most common thing these days, especially on this subject. And, and can I ask you if anything I said, did you hear anything that makes you just? I'm not going to ask if you changed well, your mind. But, I think on the suicide, I think on the suicide prevention part and the, and the mental health side of that. And it's not mental health. Very, uh, <laughs> but, no, no, but but a lot of other gun, a lot, some other uh, other gun externally directed okay. gun violence is often mental health. Well, actually, people with mental illness are statistically less likely to commit violence than people without mental illness. They're more likely to have violence committed on them. Well, it's the, the, in the big picture, but, uh, you know, a Lanza, in, for instance, or a James Holmes, for instance, those guys clearly have mental health issues that, that, that you know, it wasn't the weapon that made them do it. it no, but if they their, hadn't had the weapons, they wouldn't health. have killed so many people. I know. And then, like I said, we get back to, it always comes back to agency. 
And, right. and look, I, I have a beautiful long-range rifle, Remington 700 Magnum. The thing is, is capable of knocking down a damn moose. It's also capable of, of knocking down a person at, you know, at 800 yards. I'm never going to use it that way. It's not the weapon that, 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 that causes the, a, a, an evil person or a sick person to, to use it that way. It's not the weapon that causes them to do that. The weapon enables it, it empowers it. I don't dispute that in the slightest. But, but you know, we can't just pretend that, 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 that people who want to do evil won't do evil. I mean, in Nice, a guy ran down 80 people and injured 400 with a truck. <laughs> and we always talk about guns and the scale of, 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 of deaths and things like, like Las Vegas, which is horrific and terrifying. But, you know, that truck didn't make that guy run those people down in Nice. That truck didn't, you know, cause him to commit uh, a, an unbelievable act of murder. Um, and no one's, no one's talking about, you know, uh, whether or not, you know, the truck had some inherent quality about it. Rick? That, that, that should be, you know. That's because more, trucks more have other. I get it. Trucks have other uses besides running over people, whereas guns have a very limited number of uses. Shooting at things and shooting at people. Those are the two ways a gun can be used, right? Well, yes, and shooting at things is morally a zero. Sure. And shooting at people is a, is a negative. Okay. Driving a truck on the road is morally a zero, and, and driving, driving a truck over people but is it's a just... negative. Again, it's just, it, it's like, I, I, get the, I get that guns as, a, as an implement, as a tool, as a device, are designed to do something, but it is still the hand, the eye, the mind, the heart, you know, the soul behind the person pulling that trigger that determines what that tool and that implement does. Okay, so we're Sometimes not it does awful shit. going to have, a, I'm not going to be able to philosophically sway you on this. I know that. But <laughs> for my own, just, I'm going to admit, like some kind of scorekeeping or at least test of effectiveness. Have Has anything I said gotten you to think a little differently or think a little more about any of this stuff. Uh, here's here's my here's what I think. I believe that you have a ha, have a have a positive, good-hearted intention to try to solve the problem. I think we're very far apart on on the philosophical question about guns and and the philosophical question about human nature a little bit. I I just don't think things make people take action. I think people and things that are wrong with them mentally or spiritually cause people to take action. And, and, and I, I just don't believe in a, that a thing has this magical inherent quality. You know, a sword has an inherent quality. It can be hung over a fireplace as decoration or it can stab somebody. You know, not everybody who picks up that sword, you know, or goes fencing you know, but decides to go on a rampage. It's just, it, yeah, I, 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 I get, I'm not gonna be able to philosophically change your view on this, but like, for instance, waiting periods to buy a gun. Like, are you okay with those? Um, I believe those are basically matters of state law. And, and I believe that, that, that waiting periods don't really accomplish a lot of what people think they accomplish. They reduce suicide if, rates. They pass those laws. If states pass those laws, God bless them. Rick, you know, if, Rick. If, they're, if they're not waiting periods that violate, you know, you can't do a one-year waiting period. States, states that I mean, have you, waiting you periods a, uh, have lower suicide rates by gun than other states. 
So yeah, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. So Listen, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying right now that that I completely oppose waiting periods. Okay. I don't think they're as effective as people think they are. And I'm. I, I always have a bias to action. Mm-hmm. I always have a bias to success. I want things to be. Fun. When we do something as a as a country or as a government or as a people, I want us to do something that actually means something, and not just something that makes us feel good for five minutes. I'll tell you that waiting periods in all 50 states would give a lot of people five more minutes um, than it they might, already and had. I'd take a look at it. And, I, and, and listen, I would take a look at it. If all I right. thought it was going to be effective, particularly at either uh, reducing suicide or domestic uh, cases, I'd take a look at it. All right. I'm not saying I wouldn't. All right. I'm just going to count that as a win. Uh, and we have probably bored some people to tears already, but this was fascinating for me. I know. This, es- this esoteric... This esoteric philosophical discussion we get into. <laughs> well, it's very real. Obviously, it's very real. I mean, it's very real for me. I know it's. I know you. You can know it's reality as well. Um, yeah. And hopefully, we did model something here. I don't know. I hope. Maybe. We'll, we'll see. see. Either that, or they'll just hate us both. <laughs> uh, which is always a possibility, and I embrace it. Um, thank you, Rick Wilson. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dan. I'll talk to you soon. And that is it for the show. I'm going to give you the resource numbers again, just in case. The crisis text line, which is help for almost any kind of emotional or mental health issue, is 741741. And the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. Both of those resources are available for you 24 hours a day. And remember, even if you're not going through a particular crisis right now, even if you just feel downtrodden by this relentless onslaught of events that are so costly to who we are. You are not alone and you are loved and I'll be here for you next week. Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.